Uh, we're going to be in Ephesians 1. If you have a Bible or a phone, a gadget, a tablet, a copy of God's Word, you want to turn there. Ephesians 1 is where we'll be. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we, uh, we place Bibles under the chairs. Uh, the blue Bibles that are spaced around, if you can find one of those and you don't own a Bible, that's, uh, take it home with you. That's our free gift to you. We want you to have a copy of God's Word. So those are the blue Bibles placed underneath the, the uh, chairs there. Um, so just, uh, just briefly, and we're going to get started pretty quickly today and in in actually in the Scriptures um, if you're visiting with us, we're in a, in a series, we're walking through the book of Ephesians, and we just got started last week, so this is a good time to join us. Um, we covered the intro last week, the first two verses, where Paul identifies himself as the author, and then he talks about who he's writing the letter to, these Christians in Ephesus, and, uh, and we learned a lot. We learned a lot about ourselves, and uh, we learned about who uh, we are in Christ, uh, our new identity in Christ as saints, that that's not just a special position reserved for the super, super holy, the super, super religious, the super, super spiritual, but that anybody who is in Christ is called a saint. And, uh, and that's what God's word calls us. And so last week was, was really encouraging for me. I hope it was for you. Uh, this week, we're gonna hit the next 12 verses, uh, three through, through 14. And uh, so some things about where we're going uh, in the next few verses to kind of help you understand it a little better, hopefully. Um, one was keep in mind, we're opening a letter. Okay, so we hit the introduction, and now we're going we're gonna to hit this kind of opening statement, if you will, in a letter that will set um, a tone for the rest of the letter. It will lay out some theology. Um, you've heard that. Tell them what you're going to tell them, and tell them, and tell them what you told them. This is kind of, in some way, Paul's telling us what he's about to tell us, in summary. But it's a really unique set of verses in your Bible, and if you, if you don't study it like on an original language level, you might miss some things. One is that... Um, at least from Paul's writing, it's like the longest sentence he writes in the New Testament. It's, uh, I think, 120 words, and there's, of course, the Greek language has no punctuation, but uh, it reads as one sentence. And so that tells us something about the statement itself. And so some things that probably are true about what we're about to read is this, that um, more than likely this was a, was a creed or a doxology that the early church would say and recite to one another when they would get together. Um, he doesn't say, here's our creed, and then lay it out. So we don't know that for sure, but the way it, it reads and its flow and what's in, included in it, um, it quite possibly was. I mean, they didn't have a website, so you could go check out the statement of faith. They didn't all have copies of God's word like we have. And so oftentimes they would just recite back to one another what was true. And so it seems like this is probably one of those things that Paul decided to lay out in a letter, regardless of whether or not it was, um, the content of what Paul is writing is this. He is laying out for the Ephesians, us as believers, what is already true in terms of our blessings in Christ. Now, when we get to uh, the modern church today, 2014, and we throw out the word blessing, um, you're gonna have different denominations and theological people shooting at that from different, a lot of different angles, okay? Uh, some who... Uh, would say, you know, got all the blessings that God has for us are already accomplished, and so there aren't any new blessings, just what we already have. Some who would live in a sense of uh, blessing is right now in this moment. If I'm not being blessed right now in this moment, I'm not blessed, and that somehow God's blessing is contingent on my faith or my obedience, and I walk in and out of blessings. And so, so somewhere in between, though, we're gonna see where Paul lays out for us some beautiful things about the things that are already ours in Christ, but it's not all past tense. He's gonna talk about what we currently have, what is currently going on in our lives today because of these rich, secure blessings that we already have. So to get started, uh, let's start in verse three. 
um, just, a, just a quick conversation about the way that, um, like especially in Jewish literature, the idea of the word blessing is used. When it's used from God to us, it's specifically talking about something God has done. He does this for us and he blesses us and our life becomes more rich, it becomes different, something has changed, God has blessed us, okay? Not just a high five, but like God has, has done something in us. When you see the word used from us back to him, it's probably best translated praise, okay? So that we don't get the understand that we're just swapping things with God. He blesses me, I'm gonna bless him back, okay? It's not like God's the, the 80 year old woman in the house looking at her blinds and we're out there raking the leaves for him and we're blessing him, right? Our blessing to him is our praise. And you're gonna see that in these verses. So the first verse reads, verse three reads with these words. So blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You could just say praise to him. Praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So this is really the theme of what we're gonna read, these spiritual blessings that we have in the heavenly places. Now, for those of you who are interested in going deeper into uh, the sermons, into the Bible studies we do in the second service have the adult Bible study going on in the next building over. And, uh, and you'll get a chance to go a little bit deeper into what's, what's happening here in the text. But just briefly, um, two things have been communicated to us. One, these blessings are spiritual, okay? Paul is very specific when he uses the word spiritual or spirit. Comes up a lot in Romans, comes up more in this letter. He's not talking about things of the flesh. Anytime he uses that word, matter of fact, he uses it to contrast things of the flesh in Romans. So what he's saying is, what I'm talking about here are blessings that, that are not in your flesh. Not necessarily things that you can take hold of and go home and measure. I'm not talking about an extra zero in your bank account. What I'm talking about are spiritual blessings. And, and Paul doesn't leave us hanging. He talks a lot about our spiritual blessings, spiritual gifts, right? Those aren't, aren't earthly gifts. Those are spiritual gifts, things, things that have been imparted to us by the Holy Spirit, things we couldn't do in our flesh on our own. And so we know that the blessings he's gonna talk about, these are spiritual blessings, not just things here on earth that will excite us today and be gone tomorrow type blessings, like uh, the new car or you know, money or this promotion or this weather. You know, the way we use the word blessing, you see, we have to talk about this. Oh, I'm so blessed today. This weather is just such a blessing. True, but what Paul's talking about are things that you can't touch with your flesh, blessings. Then he says what? In the heavenly places, which we won't go too deep into this. Um, see the adult Bible study for more information. Um, this, uh, this could mean two things. One, he's talking about heaven as a location or two, just a current spiritual reality of heavenly places and probably talking about both here, okay? So Paul wants, to, before he starts laying out blessings, he wants to get our minds off of our drive to church. He wants to get our minds off of how our week went last week. He wants to get our mind off of the things that are probably bogging us down right now with worry and anxiety. He wants to get our minds off of these things that we long for today that we'll be bored with tomorrow. And he wants us thinking in terms of spiritual blessings, heavenly places, not just your physical reality, but a permanent spiritual reality. And then he begins to lay out these beautiful statements about the blessings that we have in Christ. All right, let's dig in. This is gonna be fun. Verse four, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Well, that's a pretty big statement. 
Now, if we go too much further, that in him that comes up is gonna come up a lot. In him, in Christ, in the beloved. That appears 12 times in, in the opening 14 verses of this letter. We know this is a big deal. So he's saying to us, those who are in Christ, that's who I'm talking to. These are your blessings. And so the first thing he says here is that we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Now, before we get into conversations about predestination, we'll do that in a minute, it'll be fun. Um, just on a very simple level, we see God as the initiator of this relationship, okay? Which is a little bit different from how we present the gospel oftentimes in the modern context, if, right? I mean, if we're just gonna be real honest, we oftentimes present God as being lonely and he needs us. And he's just waiting for you, I've used this before, to cross the dance floor to junior high dance. He's just over there all by himself. He's all alone. He needs a friend. Somebody please dance with him. Right? We, we share the gospel sometimes that way. God just needs you. On, he's just, he wants you and he's lonely. And, and somehow we're going to come and fulfill some deep need he has. Well, Paul starts off by saying, no, 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 you need to understand something. God's the one who crossed the dance floor. He initiated this relationship. Now, he's going to spend a lot of time here explaining what he means by that. But he wants us first and foremost to know God chose you before you chose him. Now, on a, on a structural level, on a grammatical level, this verb, chose, is really one of the most important words in this whole set of verses, just so you know. Okay, the way, it's, the way Paul conjugated for the, for the Greek folks in the room, the word, everything he's going to say is, is going to, all the rest of the verbs are going to be explaining this God chose you. And so before we go any further, I mean, we, before we, like, I, I can't fully understand that and comprehend that. And, and oftentimes I feel like it's up to me to choose him. And, like, I need to rest in that. There's something incredibly beautiful about God initiated this relationship. I believe if you're here today and you're not a Christian, God is initiating that relationship with you right now. He's crossed the dance floor. He's inviting you in into a beautiful relationship with him. Now, as you continue to move forward, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. We'll come back to that phrase, okay? No doubt what he means here. He's talking about before creation, before Genesis 1. Something about what he's about to say was already on the mind and part of the plan of God, okay? He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, specifically there, I think he's going Genesis 1 on us. You were created. God chose to create you to be holy and blameless. And when we get further along in the letter in Ephesians 4, when we get to these, these things, that, that a continuation of what Jesus has done in us, he's restoring that holiness, righteousness of creation in us. He's not just forgiving sin. He's restoring that Genesis 1 created like very good, holy perfectness in us. And so Paul wants to say this, this relationship God is, he's initiated with you. He didn't just wait to see how you were gonna work out. I'm gonna see how he does in college before I decide whether or not I want him in the church. I mean, he, he can cause a lot of havoc. I'm gonna make sure he gets, you know, I'm gonna see how he does in marriage and then I'll choose him. That somehow God has initiated this relationship with us and his desire for you is that you would be holy and blameless. Now that should change the way you think of morality. Okay, morality is not the standard that we, we measure up to to get into heaven. It's God's desire for us, right? So God's not this vindictive, arbitrary parent who we have to appease by doing our chores. He's saying, this is what I want for you. 
Parents, right, with our kids, this is what I want. I don't simply want you to do the things. Like, I want you to see that these things have value. I want you to see yourself this way. I'm not telling you to clean your room because it, it kind of gets on my nerves. But, like, I want you to understand stewardship. I want you to understand how to, how to be responsible and take care of things you've been blessed with. And so this desire, this holiness God has for us is something that comes directly from his heart. We'll see this again in just a second. So, he has chosen us before the foundation, in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Verse, the end of verse four has an, an in love, and it's funny, um, commentators and theologians will debate on whether that goes with what we just read or what's about to follow. Here's the thing, it doesn't matter. Like, I love the way that Paul just dropped that in, in love. Like, all of this is rooted in love. And if you have any doubt, look at what he's about to say. So he's chosen us in love. Verse five, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Now we're gonna take a, some time to kind of walk through what we just read here. Just opened up a, a plethora of theological debates and the word predestination came up. This is gonna be fun. All right, so if you're not a, a theological geek, let me invite you into a conversation that the rest of us are having, okay? Um, when we read the scriptures, we see two things that seem to be competing. The will of man, the free will to choose, and then the will of God, the sovereign will of God, to choose us. And so we debate about these things. And we land in camps, we land with these labels over our camps. I believe this is true, and so here's the camp I land in. So I'm gonna give you some of those labels so you can kind of understand the conversation that all of us geeks are having. So like, um, there was a guy named John Calvin who uh, this doctrine was incredibly important to. And he wrote about it, he commentated on it, he, he taught it. Um, a lot of who we are as evangelicals today came out of John Calvin or God using John Calvin to write down things that we believe. But in the midst of that, he landed in a hyper sense of understanding of God's choosing and sovereignty. It's called, so today we call it Calvinism. So if you hear that term, um, I'm not gonna get into all the details of it, but that's, just think that, think complete sovereignty. Okay? God completely has sovereign over every molecule, every moment, every choosing, every choice. Okay? And so if there is free will to be understood, it's underneath the sovereign will of God somehow. But then you have another end of that theological spectrum as you kind of move away from complete control of God. You move towards Arminianism, open theism, uh, which, which on the hyper sense, okay, we'll get to a, to a point where God doesn't know anything that's going to happen. God isn't in control of anything. He's just kind of wound the universe up and threw it out there on a, on a whim, right? On a, on a wing and a prayer, I hope it lands this way, right? And then everything is up to us. Everything's up to what you choose to do. You're, if you're good, these things will happen. If you're bad, these things will happen. If you have faith, this will happen. If you don't have faith, this will happen. And God has like no say over anything, okay? So those are two kind of far ends of this, this debate. Well, when you, when you simply read the scriptures, you're gonna see, you're gonna see not the hyper, necessarily the hyper ends, but you're gonna see plenty of room uh, and for both camps and for both perspectives. Um, it's God's will and desire that none would perish. We read that clearly in the scriptures. All who call the name of the Lord shall be saved. But then you have these other verses that talk about God choosing those to be saved. Well, which is it? Is it everybody gets the chance or is it just some? Is it the elect or is it all of us are the elect? Let me just read some verses here to kind of lay some groundwork and then we'll talk through some of this. And 
If this conversation is boring you, hold tight. It's going to get exciting at the end. It is. Um, so here's just some verses that, that clearly state God's intent towards us. This is going back to Old Testament, Deuteronomy 7, 6. says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And this is written specifically to the, to the Israelites, to the Jews. But we see in here God's choose, clearly a choosing God, right? And not only that, he's choosing people to be a treasured possession. Now, we, we walked through this last year. There's nothing treasurable about these folks. They're disobedient. They cheat on God. They're, you know what I'm saying? So like this idea that they're a treasured possession is that God makes them a treasured possession. He chooses, I want you to be my treasured possession. Okay, so we see that God is a choosing God. Uh, in, in James 2.5, he says this, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Rick, I'm going to jump down to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This one always humbles me. When I get excited about God choosing me and calling me to his team, I go back to 1 Corinthians 1 where Paul says, well, what James says is correct. That's right. God chose from the poor right? But, but Paul takes it a step further and he wants to remind us of something. Look at what Paul says about us being called or chosen. 1 Corinthians 1, 26. He says, consider your calling, or your choosing if you want to say that. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is, what's that word? Foolish. And so who's he talking about? Just real quick. That's right, the saints. He chose the foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not. You're an are not without Christ. I'm just reading the word of God. To bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast or brag in the presence of God. So when you get into the presence of God, you realize that he got you there. Verse 30, and because of him, you are in, what? Does that sound familiar? Who initiated this? He did. Now, because of him, you were in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Okay? So before we, like, and this is what happens. Um, I'm going to talk candidly for you. Can I do that, saints? Okay, let's talk candidly about both ends of the spectrum and then we'll, we'll hit some more verses. So like, I see folly or foolishness in both ends, okay? Doesn't mean I don't land somewhere, but I see, I see some, some foolishness and some goofiness in both ends and even in some of the in-between, okay? Like I've, I've, watched, um, uh, I've watched usually young men, ladies aren't this bad, young men discover this theological conversation and begin to drift towards Calvinism and, and come out of that just fighting, right? Just looking for a theological fight with somebody. I'm right and I believe this. And it's like, uh, Mark Driscoll says this about young men who discover uh, Calvinism really needed to be just locked into an, an octagon cage for a couple years and just let them fight it out with one another until they, until they come to the humility that comes along with this idea of being chosen, okay? But then you also on the other end have another distinct foolishness that comes with it that presents God, like I've said, as this, this poor little old lady who just can't even rake her leaves. And she hopes they'll get raked, 
right? She hopes that some good old, some good boys and girls will show up to do some things for her, but right now she can't, she's kind of stuck in her chair. Now she set things up and let it go, but she's, it's kind of up to us to make the world go round, okay? Which is equally foolish, right? Like, I'll probably say this again in a minute, but here's the thing, like, so we're trying to understand an infinite God and, and, and we're trying to understand this, this universe that right now from where I sit appears to be infinite, like it can't find the boundaries of it. And we're trying to do this with a brain that's about this big, okay? About this, I mean, I'm being generous with some of you, but <laughs> foolish, right? It's foolish. If you're gonna enter into this conversation simply based on what you can understand and what makes sense to you, you're subjecting not just the universe, you're subjecting an infinite God to your ability to understand him. This little thing right here, I'm gonna understand an infinite God. So on some level, we need God to tell us what is true, right? We need God to speak to us and say, plainly, this is what is true. Trust me on this one. Now, you continue on in the conversation, um, different ways you can land on this from Acts 4 Um, we see this description of of God's plan to use Jesus on the cross. Just a few verses, 27 says, for truly in this city, being Jerusalem, they they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus. This is describing the scene at the cross. It was vicious towards Jesus. A lot of people gathered there, Jews and Romans. They were gathered against him at the cross. They were gathered against your servant Jesus, whom you anointed, talking to God, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, that's the crew that was there, look at verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan have predestined to take place. The cross was predestined by God. It didn't just happen. Jesus didn't just get caught in the garden and went, oh crud, now what am I gonna do? (sighs) Okay, well I can always resurrect, you know, I can always just, you know. Like, that's not what happened. Right? The plan of salvation, we saw it last year, was God's predestined. We can't argue with that. It wasn't a last-ditch effort to try to grab our attention. God planned, right? Go read Isaiah 53. In detail, he planned the suffering and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Romans 8 will bring in another aspect that some people will, will kind of use to help understand this, and this is the idea of foreknowing. Uh, Romans 8, 28 And then a few more verses, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good. We like that verse, don't we? We sing it in here. For those who are called according to his purpose. 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those who he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. He foreknew, he predestined, he conformed, he called, he justified, and he glorified. Now, so some folks will say, well, the way I understand human free will and God's will working here in this idea of predestination is this. God can see everything that's gonna happen. And when, when something does happen, it doesn't happen outside of his allowing it. So therefore, he's sovereign. Right? At any point, he's got an e-break on your mouth, on your legs, on your life, on your health, and he can just... But whatever he allows to happen then would say to us, he's a sovereign God. He's allowing our free will to go forward, okay? So you kind of got three possible ways you can land on this and then a 
probably an infinite number in between. One, um, you can say, well, by this predestination word showing up, what Paul is saying is that God is in complete control of every moment, every molecule, like hyper-Calvinism, right? Everything is dictated and authored by God. Or you could say, or well, on this end of the spectrum, here's, how, here's what you do. You just, you just jump over it and keep on reading. That's what happens. Like, you can't get away from the word, right? But somewhere in the middle, sometimes we land and we land in apologetics and we land in this, under, well, if he can foreknow it, then he can, he can understand it, he can allow it. Um, apologetics has a foolishness to it as well. So if you're an apologetics guy, look at me right here. I'm, I love you. Apologetics are fun, but be cautious. One, if you simply rely on apologetics, what makes sense to lead people to Christ, one, you're setting them up for failure if you're not careful. Because as you build that bridge on what makes sense leading up to God, eventually there has to be a step of faith. And we need to be upfront about that with, with people, right? As we explain apologetically how things work, I love those conversations, but we also need to be upfront. At some point, this is gonna require you to believe something you can't see and that won't make sense to you. Now, I can walk you as far along as I can, but to become a Christian, it's a step of faith. It's believing God on what he said beyond what makes sense. And so we have to be cautious which camp we land in. There's a, there's a folly that comes with all of them, okay? Now, um, here, here's the beautiful thing, but two beautiful things about this. One, you and I can have a unity of faith and pretty much land almost anywhere on that spectrum. Almost. But like... Yeah, we can have a unity of faith. We can sing songs about Jesus together. I'll high five you in heaven. Um, when we get there, there'll be no more debate, so it won't matter who was right or wrong. Like, we have a beautiful unity of faith, right? And we can land in different places on that spectrum. Now, here's the second thing that's even more glorious than that. It's not what Paul's even talking about here, right? It's not even his main point. Now, now, bear with me here. Like, he's telling all this to us. He's reminding us of these things, not to explain deep theology, but to describe these beautiful, indescribable, unexplainable blessings that we have. These things are true. Whether, I don't care where you land. It's true. God chose you. We were, we were talking about this in our, um, sorry, I'll calm down. I'll, I'll, but I'll fire back up in a minute. In our life group this, this past weekend, one of the, the exercises was to talk about the difference between a biography and a testimony. And, uh, and so I threw it out to the group, what's the difference? And it was just so proud of the life group, they jumped right on it. Biography is about me, a testimony is about him. Now the details could be very similar and the same, but one's about me and one's about him. And so what Paul wants us to see is that this, this idea of blessing, like this is about him. This is about what he has done. Seminary students, like go study the Greek. A lot of passive on our part and a lot of active on his part in what he's doing in us and for us. And so look at the very next phrase after verse six. Look at verse seven with me. And I think we begin to feel Paul's angst. Actually, let's, let's slow down. Let's, let's come back to six. So let me read five again. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, verse six, to the praise of his glorious grace. Like he's, he's stirring them up. He's, he's calling the saints into worship here. He's not trying to start a theological debate or explain it on some deep level. He's saying, this is true whether we understand it or not. Get fired up, saints. 
to the praise of his glory, he has done these things. Right? So I love the theological conversations and I like having them in one-on-one settings most often because we can really talk and be objective and go back and forth. But like, let's not get so bogged down. You see how much time we spent in the sermon on one word? And we almost didn't get to the main point Paul was making. If we're not careful, we'll do that in life. Okay? So let's look deeper. Because he just said something incredibly beautiful. We were, we were chosen before the foundation of the world. We were predestined. And what was the next description of us after predestined? Adoption. Now this is a beautiful, absolutely beautiful word. Um, sonship adoption is a, probably a literal translation of this one word. Sonship adoption. So adopted as sons, it's one word. And Paul is the only biblical author to use it, okay? Now, it shows up a lot in, uh, in other Greek writings of this time period, but primarily in legal documents, and it's, 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 it's a legal term. Used to describe when a household leader, male leader, chooses to, 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 to take his inheritance and give it to a, a, a male who is not a part of the family, okay, I'm kind of walking through what it means legally, that is sonship adoption, okay? Very similar to the way we understand legal adoption today. So leader of a household, and he wants to leave his inheritance to this male over here who's not his son, there has to be a legal process that takes place, and it's this word, sonship adoption. Now, Paul uses it several times in different letters. In Galatians, he uses it again. But you understand, Paul was an expert in the law, both religiously and politically. And so he chose this word very carefully. And he says, whether, we don't care like where, where you land on this spectrum of theology, here's what you can't get away with, away from. God has adopted you. He chose you who were not his child. And, he, and here's the thing. He's not just inviting you um, to the table to kneel and gather the crumbs off the floor or catch the scraps as they fall. He's saying, no, 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 no. I want you to sit at my table as one of my children. This being invited in, this being chosen is not just hey, I'm putting on this concert and I want to invite you to come watch and see. God is saying, no, I'm, cho- I'm choosing you to be my, my son. I- I'm adopting you in as an heir legally. That's beautiful. Oh, man. We get to, that's why Paul drops in love right there between those two verses, in love. He predestined you, however you want to understand that, for adoption, sonship adoption to the praise of his glory. Let's keep reading. We'll we'll never make it through here. Verse seven. Um, By the way, just take some time. If you're doing word studies, you're involved in the adult Bible study, go back and look at the purpose of his will. Um, It's God's good pleasure and God's desire. See, God's not the angry neighbor who opens the door after we knock long enough. This got this thing, this idea that he's initiated this relationship with, it's part of his, it brings pleasure to him. It It fulfills desire in him to adopt us in. Verse seven, in him we have, now so far there's been a lot of past tense. Now we're gonna Shift real quick to something we have right now. So all this past tense action has accomplished something present tense for us. In him we have redemption. 
That's a beautiful word. And so he explains what he means by redemption. In him we have redemption through his blood. The him and the his is who? You like that? It sounds like a Dr. Seuss book. The him and the his is who? The him and the his is Jesus. So because we're in him, we, we have redemption through him, through his blood. He paid the purchase to, to get us in. But then he goes on to say, so in him we have redemption through his blood. Here's what I mean by that, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Um, I know it's not, a, it's not a super popular thing to talk about from the pulpit these days, but sin is a real issue. It's a real ongoing issue. It's a deep and dark and ugly issue. And we're involved in a culture that is um, continually in the process of um, removing the label of sin off of things one by one. And, uh, and, and so, so here's where we are. We need to call it, be able to call sin, sin. Okay, we need to be honest about it. If we pretend like sin isn't sin, then it diminishes, it dilutes, it waters down the blood of Jesus. It was a very costly, bloody price he paid for us because sin is real and it's dark and it's deep and it's ugly. And guess who gets to decide what is sin and what is not sin? God does. And it's not so much that he's got two buckets and he's like, mm, I don't know. Yeah, let's put that one in a sin bucket. Mm, no, let's put, no, I don't know. Sin is determined by God's character. Sin is in opposition to holiness, period. God doesn't pick on certain people who have certain sins, right? To, right, to, uh, we could just go through the list. Why, why should we? Like, some people feel like picked on by God. Well, this is my sin because, like, I, I Let's just call it not sin anymore because like, nobody else is struggling with this and this is mine. God says, I'm not, listen, sin is opposition to my holiness and my character. I'm not just picking and choosing. Sin is opposite of me, opposite of holy. So he gets to determine, his character determines what is sin and what is not sin. Now to fully get fired up here with Paul, we gotta be honest about it. This was expensive. This redemption was expensive. Jesus purchased it with his suffering, with his blood, and with his death because sin is real. So let's just skip past these few words. We've been redeemed. Your sin in Christ has been forgiven. Partially, kind of, somewhat. How much? Completely. All of it. Done. Now, is that something that we're hoping will happen or something that has already happened? It's already happened. So in him we have redemption, forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace. And I'm gonna hold my tongue on this one mostly because we're gonna hit it again in two and it's beautiful. But in two, Paul's gonna talk about how the riches of his grace um, We'll, there'll be a future acknowledgement of these riches. So the way I interpret it as Paul puts it together is when I get into heaven, as I said before, you'll look at me and go, wow, God is rich in grace that he let you in. He had enough grace to, to get you in. Brother got some grace, okay? For now, he's just simply stating it, okay? According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. And this is this beautiful idea of like, um, of somebody painting a fence and you're not really like following the lines, you're just slopping it on, lavishing, just push his grace on us. 
in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. This is a theme in Ephesians, the mystery of the gospel. And so we see that God inviting us into the conversation, helping us to see things on a deeper level, that's grace, right? The brain, right, it's this big. It couldn't get to these deep mysteries of God. And God's unveiling things to us. He's showing us things. You're, hopefully today, you're able to see things maybe even more deeply and richly about who God is. The Holy Spirit's doing that for you by grace, God is inviting you into that understanding and that knowledge of who he is. He's making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him, things in heaven and things on earth. Amen? Okay. We've, we've made it through most of um, the, the theological landmines, if you will. Uh, we're going we're gonna to pick this back up, though, and, and finish these last few verses. And as we do, um, I'm going to go ahead and read 7 through 10 instead of going verse by verse. I want you to just kind of feel the theme of what Paul is saying here in writing. In him we have obtained, present tense or past tense? Obtained, E-D at the end, past tense. Okay? You kind of see the blessings that we have in Christ, past tense, already been obtained. So in him we have obtained an inheritance which is probably, well, it's a good translation but not the only translation for that word, uh, to be chosen by lot. Uh, it's klerao, I believe. Come on, Greek folks, that's it, I think, klerao. And it's like the word clergy kind of comes from here. It's the word used when Matthias was replaced Judas in Acts 1 and they didn't know which one to pick and so they cast lots. Okay, that's this word here, casting, to be chosen by lot. Okay, that's a, that's a literal, literal translation. So let me reread it again that way. In him we have obtained this being chosen by lot or this inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be, so here's the so, so that what? So why are you telling us this, Paul? I'll tell you why I'm telling you this. So that, so that we might get fired up. How can you enter into this place week after week knowing these things are true and have that blank stare on your face, right? How can you be glued to your seats if, the, if you believe these things are true? I'm telling you this to fire you up, to stir you up to the praise, to the praise of his glory. So that we might be to the praise of his glory. Verse 13, in him you also, love this, slow down a little bit, you also, Okay, so now we're asking the question. We're going back to the, the, the idea of blessings. Um, and, and what we have in Christ in terms of spiritual blessings have already been obtained for us. And Paul says, here's when you received all this. Okay? So just so you don't get confused, I've got part of this. I'm waiting on the rest of it. Here's what Paul said. I'm going to tell you very slim, simply, when you received all these things. Look at what he says. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth... I wonder if he's talking about the gospel. Oh, look, the gospel of your salvation. So when you heard that and then you believed, you responded in faith, at that moment, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Yeah, sweet. That's when you got all this stuff. That's when God sealed these blessings in your life. I think that we, it's not that we don't, walk through life as Christians in and out of blessing, it's that we, 
we walk in, in and out of, a, of, a, of a, an awareness of blessing, what we've already been blessed in. Like I hear the term revival um, getting thrown around a lot historically and currently and a friend of mine's church is going through a revival and, and our hope in revival that is that our hearts are stirred and revived, our relationship is renewed, a sense of holiness is restored and we're set back on fire for God. I'm good with all that. But I think sometimes what we think is I need God to do something new so I can be revived. I need God to say something new so I can be revived. I need to do something new so I can be revived. And that's not what we need. What we need is to acknowledge what has already been done. And if that doesn't revive you, check your pulse. Right now, turn to your neighbor and say, will you check my pulse? This is, if this is not firing you up, stirring your affections and your heart, and like, like if right now you're not thinking, I can't wait till we sing this next song. Like there may be something going, like you may need to go to the doctor today. This is where revival comes from. Not what we need new, but what has already been done for us and in us and to us. In him, when you heard the gospel, you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. This is why I think it can be so um, demeaning. I don't know if that's the right word to God, when all we do is ask him to bless us with this earthly junk. Now, I'm not saying that there, there aren't small forms of blessing, right, that we enjoy when things go well, but sometimes things right, change and don't go well. But these things don't change, okay? That's what we're talking about here. And, and so it can be so demeaning or so, so deluding or so small when we say, God, I just really, really want this new, and you call it a toy, it's like when my six-year-old really, really wants well, have to have this new game on, the, on your phone. Can I just, I just want it, Dad. I just want it. And we call that blessing. I, I can just, I can feel in the angst of what's being communicated here, God speaking back to me at least saying, I've given you my spirit. And you want stuff? I've put my spirit in you. I've made you alive. I've imparted gifts. I've sealed you. I've adopted you. You want, you want a new Tonka toy? You see? Paul is saying, listen, saints, you've already been blessed. You're being blessed right now. You're walking in blessing. The reason why you can't see this is because you have your eyes on all these earthly things. Get your eyes off that stuff. Look at what matters. So here's where he ends sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the what? Get off your seat to the praise of his glory. Now, this brings me back to the theological frustrations I have with both ends of the spectrum. Like what you'll see sometimes maybe from the, the full free will, open theism, Arminian side of things is like everything depends on me. So guess who gets the praise and the glory? Me, or the pastor, or the, the, the church leader, the, right? Because everything depends on us. God just unwound it. We're out playing in the front yard. He can see me from his chair, but he's not doing anything. So when we get fired up and excited and we start praising, we start praising one another, praising ourselves. But then on the far other end of the spectrum, everything depends on God. There tends to be this, this lethargic headiness to it. Well, God already knows what he's gonna do anyway. Right? So I'm just going to show up and go through the motions and be his robot and just play it out however he wants to play it and I'm not going to get excited about anything. I think Paul's calling out of both camps saying, you kidding me? 
quit, quit arguing over this. It's true. I'm not going to take time to fully explain it, probably because I can't. But you've been chosen. God initiated a relationship with you. He initiated a salvation plan for the world. He did it. He gets the praise and the glory. And if you think you're something because he chose you to be on the team, go read my letter to the Corinthians. How's that fit? He chose from the foolish, the have-nots, the are-nots. Now go brag on yourself. Why? So that our praise would erupt and the object of our praise would be singular. Him and him alone. You see what Paul's doing as he opens up this letter? Stirring them up, reminding them of what is true, reminding them of what they already know, reminding them of the blessings that they already have. Remind them to let go of the, the earthly junk that they're longing for and take hold of that which they already have. It's already guaranteed. It's already sealed. It's already been done past tense. It's still working present tense and currently right now in your life, but it's already been accomplished past tense. Guaranteed. It's a pretty strong word, right? And sealed is a pretty strong word. Make it even stronger. The Holy Spirit's the one who seals these things. So like I said, we can have a unity of faith, if you, if you land you know, hyper-Calvinist or even towards the open theater, we can have a unity of faith, but, but I don't think we do have a unity of faith if we don't get fired up. I don't. I don't think we have a unity of faith at all. If we, this doesn't move us, stir us, revive us, if this doesn't call us into repentance and humility, then I, I kind of wonder if we even do have a unity of faith, even if we put the same label. Here's something ridiculous about labels, by the way. Theological geeks, me too. Like, think about it. When you jump in a camp and you grab a label, Calvinism, Arminianism, I'll do it, the denomination, Baptist, whatever. You're taking a label that was identified with a brain that's about this big and you're identifying God's character with it. Can you see how foolish that is? So just be cautious jumping into camps. I'm not saying don't land, land, land firmly where the scripture lands firmly, but just be cautious of raising banners up the flagpole. Because in the end, really all they do is spark debates. So maybe this has sparked some things in you today and you want to talk this out theologically, go to the Bible study, go to your life group, talk it out, come see me, we'll talk it out. Because it matters, okay? It matters. But not so that we can figure out which camp we're in. Did you see the prevailing label in this passage? In him. That's our camp. That's our camp, church. All right, let's end here. This is what I believe Paul was saying. The gospel is God's perfect and precisely executed rescue mission rather than a reaction or a response. It wasn't a last ditch effort to win our affections. He wasn't sitting there going, now what can I do to get them to like me? Here's what I, I'm just gonna reword some of the verses we read. Here's our blessing. You wanna know what your blessing is today in Christ? He chose us in him that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he adopted us as sons and daughters. He has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses, which he lavished upon us to unite all things to him. In him, we have obtained an inheritance and we've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Just pulling the phrases out that describe our blessing. But God's good pleasure and his desire is also expressed here. By the will of God, 
He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He predestined us through his blood according to the riches of his grace, according to the purpose of his will, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as the plan for the fullness of time, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Direct words out of that passage. You see? I can't fully explain it to you. I can tell you how I reconcile it in my mind, but I can't fully explain it to you. But God is proactively initiating a relationship with you today. If you're in Christ, you're in Christ because he came to you and invited you in. If you're not a Christian today, I want you to know that. That knocking that you feel, that prodding, that stirring, that gut-wrenching thing that you can't quite put a label on is probably some level of conviction. And I want you to know that conviction comes from the Holy Spirit of God. And he's the one there today. He's not across the dance floor waiting on you to approach him. He's already crossed the dance floor. He's saying, hey, come in. Come into a relationship with me. Let's dance. I wanna forgive your sins. Yeah, we need to call them sins because they are. I wanna forgive them though. I wanna justify you. I wanna restore to you holiness and righteousness. You're not just gonna be some second-rate stepchild in my kingdom. I wanna adopt you in in sonship legal formalities. I want you in. You're gonna, have an, you're gonna have heirship in my kingdom. How's that fit for blessings? All right, let's pray together as the worship team comes back up. As I pray, I'm gonna begin with these words again from Colossians 1 I read last week. So this is gonna become just an expression as we pray together. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins.